Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Pleased to welcome Lee Mottishead to the show this uh, Sunday morning. Lee, good day yesterday. Yeah, a very good day, Nick. Um, we're so close now to the Cheltenham Festival, you sort of reach that point where the Saturdays don't necessarily mean a huge amount. Um, but yes, they did mean mm. a huge amount. And the racing was of a very good quality indeed. And thanks to one individual in particular, Christian Williams, who tied the narratives of Kempton and Newcastle together. We had loads of good jump racing to report on. And we're going to talk to Christian Williams in a few moments' time. I wanted to ask you about the piece that you wrote in the paper this morning, which concentrated quite a bit on racecourse rumours yesterday <laughs> surrounding John Bond, Nicky yeah. Henderson's novice hurdler. And I suppose that's the sort of feel you get on a racecourse in the lead-up to Cheltenham, really. It's more about those... Yeah. Stories that are going on away from the track. Absolutely. And although part of you says, right, I'm not going to write about Cheltenham today, I'm just going to write about Kempton and Newcastle. When we got there, the track yesterday, <laughs> people were alerting to say, I've seen the, the John Bond drift. John Bond's out to 10 to 1 on, for the on, Supreme. For the Supreme on Betfair. What, what's happening here? So inevitably, you know that you have to ask Nicky Henderson, knowing that he gets asked the same thing every, <laughs> every year, year. with two or three horses. Nicky, this one is drifting. Uh, and I asked Nicky the question, to which he said, well, you're probably the 11th person who's asked me already. Ollie Bell's asked you for ITV. Since I came to the door, everyone's asked me. The horse is fine. Go and ask AP. Um, and the horse, Nicky says he was fine. AP had seen the horse work on Friday. The horse was fine. Um, and it, Nicky indeed went on to say, talking about the, the, the race he's looking forward to at Cheltenham, he said the race he, in some ways he would like to win the most is the Supreme going there with, with two major chances, mm. and he fancies both horses. I said to him, you know, which of the two would you prefer most? He said, Constitution John. So nice <laughs> nice bit of sitting on the fence there. But yeah, last week, Nick, or this week, we've had three or four examples of horses who have gone on strange betting exchange drifts, and their connection to the city, they're absolutely fine. And sadly, it has become part of the the Cheltenham Festival build-up. It used to be just a case of which ones would we lose along the way, and we will lose two or three, I'm sure, high-profile names mm -hmm. before we get to the festival. But we also, I'm afraid, have to cope with these market drifts. And realistically, as journalists, we sort of have to ask connections a question. Yeah, it won't bother you if you got on at 9-1 to one or whatever John Bond was no. yesterday on Betfair and he goes and wins the Supreme Novice Circle. Do you think maybe there were, there were one or two pundits suggesting that John Bond could go the other way and go up in, in distance late in the day? I'm wondering whether that sort of Chinese whispers started to accelerate and there was a feeling that he would maybe. go to the two-and-a-half-mile race and maybe that's why people were yeah. laying in for the Supreme? Maybe. I mean, the, the whole, there always has been that question, hasn't there? Would, would, he separate would Nicky separate them? Yeah. Now, in some ways, history says that won't be the case because Nicky Henson has had a record of running 
good horses against each other in the Supreme. That that hasn't bothered him. And he, again, he stressed yesterday how they were two leading contenders for the Supreme. He wasn't in any way talking or implying that they could be separated. So at this stage, I just say it looks like one of those weird, unexplainable things that has no substance to it. Uh, Unless we find out different at some point in the future. Well, indeed, but the, the marker is now well and truly laid, laid yeah. down. Otherwise, I, I was quite interested in what he was saying about the strength of his team mm. and another big mention for, for Chantry House. He seems yeah. to be alone in his fandom for this horse. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that was entirely of his own volition. There was no questioning relating to Chantry House. He, he volunteered that he really thinks Chantry House mm. will run a big race. And I think most of us who saw the Cotswold chase would not have gone away from that race thinking, that's your Cheltenham Gold Cup winner. But Nicky Henderson, who far, knows far more about producing Cheltenham Festival winners than you or I, does seem genuinely sweet on the chances of that horse. And if he does come up the hill in front on that Friday in March, I think there'll be a lot of um, caps doth towards him because I can't see it. I don't know if you can see it, Nick, but he definitely can see it. It's another Sunday. It's the second part, as I predicted last week, of, of Paul Kimmage's story in the Irish Independent on Sunday, Racing's Dirty Secrets, part two. You remember we teed up the story a week ago. It's developed quite significantly today, Lee, in a long, long and um, complex piece yeah. in the paper, which you, know, you and I have read in the hour and a half before coming on air, and it takes an awful lot of digesting. It's very hard to sort of nutshell and pracy very quickly, but... I think it would be fair to say that the, the sort of salient point uh, is that there is a suggestion in the piece that the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board and Lynn Hillier, their head of anti-doping, have in some way um, coerced or groomed uh, an, an employee of Stephen Marne, the, the now disgraced Stephen yeah. Marne and banned Stephen Marne, um, to providing evidence against him in the case that, um, that effectively ended ended his career. Yes, that's right. And as you say, Nick, it is desperately difficult to, to, to praise. And that's not a critique of Paul Kimmich's writing. It's just that it's a very long piece and it's presented in such a way, almost like a screenplay, that it, it is very hard to praise. But the, the, the way you have done is, is how I would as well. Um, there is there's production of a, of a letter of that employee in question, that the, the father of that employee in question. Um, who uh, has clearly serious misgivings about the way the IHRB used that employee to mount a case against Stephen Marne. There is, um, there is evidence from, or quotes from, uh, the owner of one of the horses that we've been hearing about who has a complete defence of the way Stephen Marne trained and looked yes. after that horse and others. So it is, it is very difficult. I mean, the, the, the Kimmage case seems to be that the IHRB sought to discredit uh, Stephen Marne and pretty much finish him off, presumably because of his prior uh, claims. Um, as a, as a w whistleblower. Whistleblower, yeah, absolutely. On, on illicit performance-enhancing drug use in Irish racing. Yes, and the general thrust of Paul Kimmage's piece seems to be the IHRB took the view that the, 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 the story about which Stephen Mann was whistleblowing, i.e. claims regarding the use of doping in horse racing, was so great that the damage it would do to Irish horse racing if it became public mm. was so great that the RHRB uh, took the view that um, it pushed its regulation role to one side and sought to protect the reputation of Irish horse racing. They are claims yes. made by Paul Kimmage. 
we have no idea. He, he, he's up the ante a bit this week, hasn't he? The he absolutely up the has. In terms, yeah. of the, the, in terms of questioning the IHRB's probity, really. Yeah, In absolutely. terms of conducting these investigations and how these in investigations are intertwined. The IHRB have issued me a short statement this morning. They said, we advised the Sunday Independent that based on the questions that we received from them, we believe their information to be out of date, incomplete and inaccurate. The IHRB has acted professionally and appropriately at all times, and some of the correspondence used is highly selective, outdated and incomplete. That's the response from the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board this morning. Um, and the, the, re the reality <laughs> is, Nick, that none of us know where the truth lies at the moment until we see some actual hard evidence of what Paul Kimmage and others are alleging is taking place. Mm. It is impossible to, for me or you, to say anything with any conviction because we just don't know. What we do know is that even without any evidence, the reputational damage this is doing to horse racing, and particularly Irish horse racing, can only be significant. Um, and I just therefore long to see evidence if there is evidence. If, if wrongdoing has taken place, we need to know about it. There are clearly people who feel they do know about it and it would just be so good to actually see it so that we could actually then make decisions ourselves about what we believe has happened. OK, so um, we're going to talk now about about yesterday's racing, but before we, we put a button on this, yeah. do you think there's likely to be more to come before Cheltenham? I would be very surprised if there's not. I think um, we still have, what, two and a bit weeks before the Cheltenham Festival? Um, I don't know if the timing of these particular pieces has been um, presented to us with the knowledge that we are on the cusp of the Cheltenham Festival and then the Grand National, the, the major events in in the, in the horse racing year, we know last year that negative stories, damaging stories to horse racing's reputation were presented at around the same time. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if there is more to come. OK, let's um, look back on yesterday and an extraordinary day for Welsh trainer Christian Williams winning the feature races at both Kempton and at Newcastle. He had the 1-2 in the newly named Coral Trophy, uh, the traditional February Kempton showpiece. Cap Dunor bouncing right back to form under Jack Tudor to beat Kitty's Light and win my wings had struck in the Ida at Newcastle. One of the less exposed runners in that race. I'm hoping that Christian is with us now. Morning, Christian. Good morning. And I think you can forgive yourself a few celebrations last night. Tell me a little bit about the atmosphere at the, at the stable yesterday evening when you got back. We got back a bit late for that, Nick, but um, no, we had a great day. Got home about nine o'clock. Um, just had a brilliant day. The race is well looked after by Carl, Captain Ord's owners, five star getaways owners, and Kitty's Lights owners there. And um, <clears throat> it was a great day to celebrate everything with them. And obviously, what went on in Newcastle as well. It's a shame we couldn't be with Sue and Mark and their family at Newcastle, but um, it, it was it was great that she won as well. Had it had it been a big plan? To, to run a whole stack of horses in that Coral Trophy. You had identified it a long way out and you were going to really kind of um, carpet bomb that race. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, just a bit disheartened last year with the Cheltenham results in the handicap. So just stuck closer to home and great prize money. So 
obviously try and reward the, the, the track and the sponsors. And obviously each horse is owned by different individual owners who, um, you know, were going along with that plan as well. Wanted to run in that race, great prize money. So that obviously helped, helped the decision. Now, you said yesterday that you'd steered Jack Tudor toward riding Cap du Nord, and he was quite tempted to ride Kitty's Light, was it? And you had five-star getaway, I think, went off joint favourite as well. What made you push him in that direction? Yeah, Nick obviously rides a lot of Carl's horses and Mark's horses, so Nick was always going to ride five-star. But um, I just had a feeling myself that, that Cap just come back to small bit of form on his last run, and and you couldn't get away from his mark and, and his runs on the track. And, um, you know, in these big races, if you're well handicapped and you're in good form, then, you know, you, you do, as proven yesterday, you do, you do take a bit of beating. So um, it's just about 10 days your Kitty's like did a real good piece of work, which he hasn't really shown through the winter. And the ground was obviously coming good for him as well. But um, it could be too well handicapped horses. Just Captain Nord looked, looked like the... Looked like a solid one on, on the track over that trip. And I know you said you were disheartened by the results at Cheltenham last year, but Cap du Nord may remain a well-handicapped horse. And to what extent are you now tempted to, to play it up and, and head to Cheltenham? Uh, there's such great races around that, Nick. We'll, um, you only got beat four or five lengths in the Whitbread, the Bet365 last year. Sorry, try and remember the sponsors. And, um, and there's a lovely race at Aintree as well, a 100 grand handicap. So I wouldn't have thought that, um, you know, it's not a matter of really missing the Cheltenham entries, but off his mark, only one two seven. We're probably lucky to sneak into this race. We just, we had him in at Monday at Carlisle in the qualifier for a big final, but um, just took a chance. We had a fair idea that Paul Paul told me that his three at the top of the weights were coming out, so just needed a little bit of luck then with one or, one or two other entries, not, not to um, not to re-enter at the last stage, and it obviously worked, worked out for him. And Jack Tudor has proven himself time and again to be you know, one of the most promising young riders around. We're, we're riding with him on the, on the jockey cam now, saving every inch of ground. How much of a difference do you think his, his ride made? Oh, brilliant, Nick. And um, I've seen his jockey cam. It's brilliant to watch. But I wouldn't like to be riding this day and age. It's a bit, looked a bit bumpy around there. Jack didn't seem to have a great run around um, <laughs> Didn't have a great run round the first circuit, and it's funny how some of the other lads they go they go deaf in certain races when you ask them for a little bit of help. Look at this; it's a great footage, and I can see why you're not particularly inclined to to have another go at this. I'm not sure I'd ever have been inclined to do it. <laughs> no, it was great, and um, Jack looked confident from the bend, and you could, Kitty Kitty stays really well. So you could give him a chance on turning in, but. Um, Jack looked confident from the bottom bend and obviously knew Captain Order to pick up when he need, needed him. Just unlucky for Kitty that there was a stable mate in front of him. And at, uh, at Newcastle, Win My Wings won the Ida. Now, I've been following her quite closely, been there for a couple of her wins. Uh, and she's, been, she's been an amazing horse, an amazing story. Just, just tell us a little bit about some of the, some of the key moments in, in what's been a really varied career. Obviously, the buy-in to start with, she was unsold at, um, I think it was nine or ten grand, she was unsold at an Ascot sales. And uh, Matt Hall, a good friend of ours, thought thought we should buy her. So um, we just bought her then, and she, she's a great tour. She's she's not overly big. She won a nice race. She just struggles with a, bit, a little bit of form in the winter. 
and we thought we had a well handicapped to try and win a Cheltenham race last year and she went and won and then we had a bit of a French plan then after that and she got lucky and won out there and then um, she just struggled a little bit in the heart of the winter in listed mares races but she got back on track in her extra on heavy ground and she travelled a lot sweeter in the Ida chase on good ground so it was just a plan that um, we thought to try and win a real nice race there. The Ida Chase could, could be the one to win. And just lucky the ground, you know, everything fell in place. The, the ground was good up there. And, um, and obviously, first time cheek pieces may, maybe helped her early on in the race. But she she travelled like a dream. It looked like the cheek pieces probably wouldn't have made much of a difference. Maybe she travelled like a dream all the way. And you could, um, you could pick her the winner from a long way out. Let's consider some of the other results at, at Kempton. I suppose the most significant one as regards spring festivals was Knight Salute, who maintained that excellent record over hurdles uh, for Milton Harris. He's a pretty good horse, this, isn't he, actually? Yeah, he is. He really is a good horse. Um, he's unbeaten now. Um, he has won some, some big races. He has done it in a way that shows how much he enjoys racing and how much he battles when he comes under pressure. Paddy Brennan... Um, who's forged a great relationship with him, stressed that he can't recall riding a horse who was as quick over his hurdles as he is. Um, You can argue that the second there, Teddy Blue, who was only racing for the second time over hurdles, might well have got closer, but for bungling the final flight. But I think for the winner, who hadn't been out for a while, this was a really pleasing prep race uh, on the way to the Cheltenham Festival. It looks a strong triumph hurdle um, with the horses that Gordon, Gordon Elliott and Willie Mullins will be bringing into the race, including Pied Piper and Vauban. But I think in, in Night of Salute, Milton Harris and the home team have a very legitimate contender. And if he reproduces the level he has set so far, he, he shouldn't be far away. He might not be good enough to win a triumph hurdle, but he'll make him work. If Milton Harris is going to give you good copy after a race... Mm-hmm. Would you say that Chris Gordon's likely to do the same? Uh, yeah, he's not one for sitting on the fence. Yeah, I think that's a fair. <laughs> I think that's a fair shout. Um, Okan Risk, yeah, is the novice hurdler who who took the the dove cut. How strong a race do you think this was? Not particularly strong. Um, I don't think it was a a great dove cut hurdle. I think realistically, if there was one horse going into it, you thought might be a a Cheltenham Festival Grade One contender. It was the the runner up. Shall we have one more? who hasn't uh, run a bad race at all. In fact, he's run a good race. His jumping um, wasn't fabulous um, under pressure, which has helped the winner. I think the winner is a progressive horse um, who might well have a say uh, in a decent race in the spring. I think listening to what Chris Gordon was saying yesterday, that might be more likely to be at Aintree um, than at Cheltenham. So uh, good win. Good to see another major graded race won by one of the, the stables that, that don't always compete at the very top. Um, good to see these things being mixed around. Do I think that we've seen a horse who is going to shake things up at Cheltenham? No, I don't. OK. From Kempton Park to Fairy House and possibly the most significant national hunt result of yesterday, mm. and that was the victory of any second now in the Bobby Joe chase. The Bobby Joe chase is you know, a traditional uh, preparation for the Grand National, one that's sort of yielded some very interesting runners over the years. Any second now, the J.P. McManus Colours ran well in the Grand National last year when short of luck, that was for sure. 
and Ted Walsh looks to have got him absolutely bang on in terms of where his handicap mark is. And yeah, absolutely, Nick. You know, we, we were lauding Christian Williams' training um, just a few moments ago. I think the way Ted Walsh has trained this horse, he's trained differently to last season. He went to entry last year via a, a two-mile race this weekend. On this occasion, Ted felt the horse would benefit from uh, a, a different sort of test. That test came in the Bobby Joe Chase. We see here he just grabs Escaria 10 in the final strides of a race that has traditionally been used as a springboard to Irish mm. success in the Grand National. Um, both those two horses now are right at the top of the, the Grand National betting. They both must be major players in the race. On the one hand, you could say, has any second now's best chance gone 12 months ago? But he's going into the race in, in, in fantastic yeah. form. We should say he, he was... Uh, unfortunate last season, not in the sense that you could you could say with any great confidence he would have won, but his chance was definitely compromised by all but being brought down uh, on the run out of the back straight first time round. Um, and Ted Walsh is preparing him perfectly again. Magic numbers 12 today, 12 times champion trainer and 12 editions now of the Pendle Novices Chase at Kempton yesterday, uh, Paul Nichols, A race that's been very good to you. In dark times, it has come to your rescue. <laughs> dark times, yeah. That's quite laughable, really, isn't it? Um, yeah, it was, it's good. Yeah, he's a good horse. He was perfect for that race. And you know, to win it 12 times, I was looking at the horses yesterday. It's incredible, really. And, you know, a lot of those horses went on and did some special things afterwards. So I hope in Victoria follow them. He's quite a sort of explosive horse, isn't he? He's fun to watch when he gets it right. Yeah, I mean, yesterday was probably the best he's jumped, and when he needed a big one at the last, um, he delivered and um, quickened and did that very nicely. Uh, Harry Cobden, I thought, gave him a very assured ride, drilled him into the last with someone yeah. who's, who's riding with enough confidence, considering. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's riding very well at the moment, and... Um, you know, considering we've just been a little bit quiet, you know, he's running the top of his game. You know, this will jump at the last as a, you needed that to go and win, and the horse delivered and galloped on strong. So, you wouldn't, I'm not sure he'd done this 12 months ago. He's probably still been rolling, but he's got the hang of it now. Look at that, what a wing. So that was good. It's just amazing the importance of a flat track for that horse rather than a stiff track like Sandown the last day. Much better for him. So that suggests that places like Cheltenham are never really going to be in it. No, he's not going to go to Cheltenham. We go to Aintree now. Um, I wish I hadn't run him at Sandown now after the other day, but um, you know this was always our target, and then go on to Aintree. That's, that's where we'll go now. You know, he's a high-class horse when he gets it right, obviously. I I joked really when I said he was a, a ray of light in the mm. in the dark times, and you said it's laughable, really. Uh, the problem is when you set yourself incredibly high standards and people expect you to be winning mm. metronomically. Can you understand why everyone goes, what's happened to Nichols yeah. if you have a run of bad form? Yeah, I do. and we're always a little bit quieter after Christmas. Um, this year more so than normal. And um, yeah, some horses have been disappointing. We obviously had a little bit of a problem, which we haven't really identified. I just got a feeling that for whatever reason this year, some of them took a little bit longer to get over having their flu jab, which we always do in January. Yeah. It's never been a problem before. And we did find a little bit of a mineral imbalance in the feed, which we've sorted, but only minor. Nothing's ever been ill or sick or had dodgy track washes or anything like that. So, and again, a bit of better spring weather, better ground. We're, you know, we're up and running again now. And I think three of the last seven are one or something like that. And you know, we're, we're going forward. And um, you know, I looked this morning. I was just thinking, because you keep reading all this stuff and listening to it, we're actually nearly on two million pound prize money before Cheltenham. Well, I think pretty well every time. Yeah, we've done that. We've had a great season. So, yeah, collectively over a long time, it's good, and we'll get up and running really strongly from now to the end of the season. We just had a little blip. And 
I guess if you've been doing it that long, you have the self-belief to know that you don't really need to, to change anything, or do doubts start to creep in a little bit? No, you don't change anything. You just try and make sure everything is right, i.e. we checked all the food and we just had a look at a few different things to, to see if we did have a problem, because you, 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 you want to. We don't change anything, because the, the system we've mm. got has worked. And, um, it's just one of those things, and I mean, from time to time, every career you're always going to. We've been there before, and we'll be there again. You just get that quiet spell. Then you run a number of horses you probably haven't run up to Christmas. You know they're not quite good enough, and expectations are too high, and some of the game beat. And um, it's just where it is. But you know, we're back far now. And if the good ones keep winning, that's all that matters, really. 109 winners at 23%. Yeah. If I'd said to you at the beginning of the season, yeah. right, we'll be sitting here in February, 109 winners, 23%, would you have said, yeah, that's that's pretty much par? Yeah, and as I said, two million, very nearly two million in prize mm. money up to now. So yeah, that's good. I mean, that's that's if we'd stuck to that all the time, we'd be well happy. We had been going up to Christmas about 29%. I think we probably uh, was a little bit too high, and then of course it drops off. But you know, if you look at everyone else's statistics in the paper, I'd say we're very happy and very pleased with where we are, and we'll just get going now. All right. So you know what prize money level you're at. How important is prize money to you and to your owners? Do you think? To what extent does it drive their interest in the game? And how big a deal actually is it? Well, I think it's more important to me is if you if you're trying to win the trainers' championship, you know, which is you know at this stage of the season you're looking at trying to do. Obviously, competitive. We want to defend that. Every every pound counts really. And there is some good prize money out there. Obviously, it was good prize money yesterday. A lot of good prize money races. And to me. Sometimes that prize money thing gets overplayed a little bit because I'd say the majority of my owners are in the game because they enjoy it. It's a fantastic mm -hmm. game. It's their hobby. It's their life away from their businesses, and they really enjoy it. And if they can win some good prize money, obviously it all helps. But they don't go out paying lots of money for horses just because they want to go and win pots of money. They do it because they really enjoy the game, the people that are in it, as I said, the horses and the, and the sport. So it's an important thing, but it can often be overplayed a little bit, I think. I mean, to what extent are you very conscious of the fact that you have to give owners experience as well as winners? The whole package. You know, they want to, you know, so it's not just about race day. You know, they, they like to see videos and clips of horses schooling, rep updates and communication and letting them know what's going on and I think I like to think they all feel part of Team Ditchett, the whole experience really um, and um, and look after them. So this year you, you started out thought you had a, a really exciting mm. collection of, of horses to mm. go forward with at this at this stage of the season do you still believe you've got the talent to compete against the the best Irish stables? Well that's obviously going to be hard if you just look at the, the horses that they've got at the moment but you know, there are horses coming through and will always be evolving horses. Um, like look at Brave Man's Game and Stage Star, they're two examples of two really good young horses that are coming through. And, and then the Frodon was still winning this year and Clanders mm -hmm. of You know, they are getting a bit older now, so we need to look at the next generation. But they're, they're all capable of competing, as, as Frodon and Clan did in the last 12 months in, in those grade one races in Ireland. And Brave Man's Game, you know, he was well beaten at the Cheltenham Festival last year. Do you believe that is in any way a fair reflection of his natural ability level? No, because, you know, horses mature. He was a great big scopey chasing horse who probably was a bit immature last year. He's physically improved. He will do so again uh, this summer. You know, it's not all about them being novice hurdlers when they're five years old. Mm. It's about the future and being, to me, at the top of the game when they're eight, nine, ten, running in King George's and Gold Cups. That's when you want them at their best. And but, but when you... When you took him to, to, to Cheltenham last yeah. year, this horse Brave Man's game, and he, he was brushed aside mm. by, by Bollinger, I remember to you, you were disconsolate because yeah, you were like, hang on, this is, this is one of my best horses. Yeah. I thought I had him absolutely spot on, and something's just gone by him like he's, yeah. like he's standing still. 
Was that kind of just the heat of the moment? Well, I think, yeah, because if you're competitive, like if you just played any game and you got beat, you're disappointed because you're out there trying to win. And we, we had a great belief in him. You can see why. He's unbeaten this year. And yeah. what does he read? 164, which tells its own story. But he got beat last year. And, I mean, Bob Ollinger made him look fairly ordinary. I mean, he went past like Harry like he was stood still and Harry couldn't believe what, what he saw happening. But, you know... Sometimes perhaps Bob, Bob Ollinger, we'll see, might not train on like Brave Man's Game is trained on. Mm. He might have been at his best and more mature last year than, you know, horses do mature at different times and can be at their best at different times. And we all sort of tend to think, I like to look at the longevity of horses. It can be Clandes a bow and Frodon and all those old horses still winning at the top of their game when they're 10 and 11 years old, not just when they're five. So you have to train them accordingly. Don't you think that, that part of the skill of the, of the game is is revising your opinion if you think you were wrong in the first instance. So okay. you don't just take an entrenched view as soon as the race is over and stick to that yeah. view. You kind of reconsider it and think again. Absolutely. You know, nothing's set in stone. You, you never stop learning about the horses. You've got to listen to everybody involved, the, from the Scott Marshall who rides them every day to Harry. And you, you have to keep listening. And you, yeah, of course, you've got to, you can't be stubborn and just think, I know, and that's the way it's going to be. You've got to keep, keep be prepared to change, have different views. Of course you have. Yeah, because you've always got like a... A little theory, it seems to me, yeah. about about each horse. Sometimes it's not right, yeah. but there's always an idea with some, with with a horse. Yeah, you always got to have a plan. I always have in your mind. Like for me, I may be wrong, but I've always felt for the last two years that next year's King George or this year's King George will be absolutely made for Brave Man's Game. That is, that would be the most perfect scenario I could see for him. And we're going along that route, as to what I think. Um, I might be wrong, but that's that's just I've always had that in my mind and a plan. I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, but obviously everybody evolves and their operation evolves. Mm. You evolve with your own sort of levels of, you know, happiness and confidence in your in your job. Have you got? Do you think people around you now who you'll, who'll ch who'll challenge you? Do you encourage people to challenge you now? Yeah, well, Clifford and I are all, all, always talking. Um, you know, every night we still go around the horses together, and have a, every night that's probably one of the most important times between four and five o'clock. And we go around all of them, and we'll have a little chat, and he'll have his opinion, I'll have my opinion, and we might. Say so, well, Harry's just said this to us, and you know you, you never stop talking about them, and you know you've got to listen to everything. But you, you've also got to have belief in your, what you do yourself and your team, and how you've always done things, and just keep following along. We just take in little, you know, loads of crumbs make a cake. I've always said that you've got to try and get it right. This was the big news this week. It wasn't a surprise that Asheen Murphy was banned because he pleaded guilty to the charges that were put before him, and they were serious charges. I think there was a little surprise that the ban stretched to 14 months, 11 months for his breach of COVID protocols, having been on holiday to what was then a red-list country. Uh, been on holiday to, to Mykonos, and he claimed he'd been to, to Lake Como, which wasn't in a red-list country. Got 11 months for, for three breaches under those rules, or two COVID breaches, and conduct prejudicial to the reputation of the sport they run concurrently. Uh, he got a £31,111 fine. Um, he got 90 days for a third positive alcohol test at Newmarket on October the 8th to go with the 10 days for giving a second alcohol positive for his test at Chester on May the 5th. So he can return, or he can... Re reapply for a license yeah. on February the 16th, 2023. Um, there's been no suggestion so far that he would appeal that sentence, and it sounds as though he's happy enough now to take his medicine and go away and do some other things for a bit, Lee. Um, we chatted about this quite extensively on my podcast yeah. earlier in the week. 
Uh, and I said, my in- instinct at the time was, Oof, that's quite a long time. Yeah. You'd sat through the whole hearing. What were the kind of key key points to take away? Well, I think if we take the, the, the two um, subject matters, Nick, if you like, s- separately initially, although they are intertwined to an extent, the 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 issue that has triggered the, the longer penalty, the 11 months, and it's actually three concurrent 11-month mm. suspensions, is what was referred to during the hearing as the Mykonos matter. There's a name for a book in the future, the Mykonos matter. And if we just go through the story, not in bit by bit, but, but to summarise, Sheen Murphy in uh, September 2020 received a suspension uh, in the penultimate month of the, the, the season, championship season, which meant he would be out of action for seven days. He decided, perfectly understandably, to go on holiday. He decided to go to, to Mykonos in Greece. Before leaving for, for Mykonos, Greece went on the government's red list, as you say. Yeah. And Sheen Murphy made clear um, subsequently and on, 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 on Tuesday that he was aware that Mykonos was on the red list. He knew when he left that it was a red list country and therefore he should be obliged to self-isolate for 14 days on his return from holiday. Whilst in Greece, he gave uh, interviews, did a blog feature video in which he said he was in Lake Como. He knew he would have to lie while he was away, so he said he was in Lake Como. He returned from holiday, and as I say, he should have self-isolated for 14 days. He should have gone to Lake Como, that's he what I kept thinking. should have gone to Lake Como, yeah. Well, it's a nice place, Absolutely, just go to Lake yeah, Como, yeah. you've been fine. You, you've unravelled it all, the, all, the whole thing there, Nick. <laughs> I know. He knew he should have self-isolated, he didn't self-isolate. Two days after returning to, to Britain, he went to ride at Bath. He made his return to racing action at Bath. He should have been self-isolating at that time, but not only that, and this was, I think was a point that the panel really hit home on, he didn't even take a lateral flow test. So while he was in Mykonos and then on returning to Britain, he had not taken a lateral flow test up until the point after yeah. he made his return to, to race course action. So is it the fact that he could have destabilise the entire the entire enterprise of British racing is that is that do you think that was that was a ma- that was yeah so that was that was a major factor in it um, he thereafter was deceptive towards the BHA uh, about where he'd been he spent eight months denying he'd been in, in Mykonos until eventually admitting where he'd been and if you look at the three individual elements of the Mykonos matter yeah one you've got the COVID breach, um, which can't be denied. Two, you've got misleading the regulator, which he did for eight months. And three, there was acting in a manner that is prejudicial to the good reputation of of British horse racing. Items one and three, the COVID breach and the, the prejudicial conduct come together because I think you have to look at this and say, here is an individual, the reigning champion jockey, who was prepared to put at risk mm-hmm. people he was riding against and fellow racing professionals. He knew what he was doing there. That wasn't, that wasn't a mistake he made. That was entirely of his own volition. And James O'Mahony, the panel chair, I thought when he was delivering his verdict, there was a particular sense of incredulity in his voice when he said of Murphy's decision not to self-isolate. That was all you had to do. 
He then spoke about a deception that had been carefully planned, um, wasn't a spontaneous thing. So I think that for, for the, the panel was, was the, the big thing. That the this, killer blow. This was something that hadn't needed to happen. Okay. And it came at a time when the BHA, as with HRI in Ireland, was stressing to participants that you have to obey by these rules, not only, as I say, for the well-being of those you're working with, but for the sport to maintain its licensing effect to continue. And I think the panel felt that the gravity of that offence in not having done that merited those three 11-month suspensions that run concurrently. I mean, we were talking earlier in the week and I said, this could cost him a seven-figure sum. It could. Not inconceivably. And well, I, I was thinking, well, if, if the mandatory penalty or fixed penalty for the government for breaching yeah. red list protocols was £10,000, this seems a, a heavy price to pay, which is sort of why I said, do you think it's more the fact that he's been punished in the context of the potential you know, damage it could have done to the sport and he's operating within a, a sports regulatory framework rather than the kind of... Um, judgment on on the morality of him breaching government protocols. I think that's right, Nick. I think that's right, and I, and I I do understand why people see eleven months for those COVID breaches That's and the lot, thirteen. Yeah. yeah, I can I completely understand that. And you referenced when we spoke in, in, in during the pod about um, previous Australian infringements and the much yeah. lesser penalties that they received from a, from a, a very harsh, strict regulator. So I do see why people think it's a long time. But equally, having sat through the hearing and listened to those aspects of the Mykonos you could, you matter... Could, you could follow the thread. You could there follow was the a, logic. There was, yeah, there was a sense in which the jaw increasingly dropped as you looked at all the points along this story where Asheen Murphy could have halted the story and reversed back and said, look, I've got this wrong, I shouldn't have done this. His, his solicitor, Rory McNeese, did make the point, and it's a fair point, that... Once you've embarked on a lie like this, it's quite hard to get off the train. But it was still a very grave offence, I think, that he committed. I say against, as the, the panel chair said, against the sport and yeah. your fellow professionals. They also referenced um, as an aggravating matter the championship as well, which I thought well, was interesting. Well, now this is a, this is an interesting point. Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk to William Buick in a minute, but I, and I know he doesn't really want to comment on on Asheen Murphy, because yeah. he feels it wouldn't be very professional to do so. But there's, there's been a theory advanced that Asheen Murphy has, has ridden winners yeah. effectively as somebody who shouldn't be licensed at that point, or yes. who shouldn't be riding yes. at that point. And therefore, is there some sort of case, either within a regulatory framework or legally, to have those victories challenged when he should have been self-isolating? It's very difficult. And therefore, he'd be stripped of maybe two jockeys' championships. Yeah. Very difficult because he has broken, um, if you like, laws of the land more than, more than anything. And I think for the BHA to try and pull this all apart and look at all those individual yeah. races, because it wasn't just the races that he won, any race, in effect, in which he rid he'd ridden would have to be... Uh, got gone through with, with a fine tooth comb. If he finished second, should that yeah, horse not often? So, I, I sort of feel those horses that he was riding, they weren't getting an unfair, a materially unfair advantage, were they? No. They, 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 it's not like a jockey claiming three when he should have been claiming five, which is clearly what the rule no, is there to protect. No, it's simply the case that he, he wasn't obeying the law of the land at the time. That said, although 
I think Rory McNeese to say a Sheen Murphy solicitor was correct to say that you can't uh, you can't say just because he had ridden those 11 winners at mm. a time when he was self-isolating, when he should have been self-isolating, and ended up winning the championship by eight winners, that it therefore automatically follows that William Buick would have been champion jockey. Mm -hmm. However, I think if you're William yeah. Buick or you're Tony Hindy's agent, you can feel hard done by Absolutely, it. yeah. And also because of, in 2021, the first of Asheen Murphy's 2021 alcohol infringements would have triggered a 10-day ban if the same panel at the time had yeah, viewed it no. as this panel did, and he won, so again he won by two winners. So I think, again, you can't automatically deduce from it that the A leads to B. But I think if you are within the Buick camp, you will be entitled to at least to feel, feel the grievance. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'd say, yeah, absolutely, they can feel aggrieved. Totally understand where Tony Hines coming from. Do I think that these results can be challenged and overturned? No, I don't. I think that's completely unworkable, impractical, and not really in the spirit in which the rule was written. And I think, I think that's right, Nick. I think that that, um, that question of the, the 2021 championship is, is linked to the alcohol infringement. And, of course, that was the second strand well, of th the... Well, this is what I wanted to ask you, because yeah. he's, he's positive urine test Chester May 5th. Yeah, and he, I know that takes a little while to come through. Yeah, but then you've got the the third positive test in October twenty twenty one at Newmarket. Now, the BHA is aware yeah. of the second test at Chester. Yeah, way before we are, yes. way before. Yes, and he is still riding with no censure, having been administered for that test yeah. in that period between May and October. He's won the Jockeys' Championship by two. Yeah. To what extent, if you were William Beard, would you think, well, hang on a minute, the regulator has not given him any punishment in that fairly lengthy period, and that's before he's blown a bag in October. Absolutely. And I think, again, the William Buick camp is entitled to ask questions of the regulator as well as Ashie Murphy. It was explained during the hearing that problems had emerged with the, the B sample, um, of the of the Chester sample. Mm. Um, I mean, and to what extent do we think there's a bit of filibustering going on here? Dana, well, I mean, th those problems endured. Get to the end of the season. Well, th th those problems continued. Um, at no point did um, Asheen Murphy solicitor or Asheen Murphy um, offer any any blame to the to the BHA or the or the, or the testing bodies no. uh, during the hearing. Eventually, um, when it became apparent that. Um, this B sample just wasn't going to happen. The Sheen Murphy camp waived it, and if you like, just accepted the the A sample. So there are questions about how this has played out during 2021 in a regulatory sense. In terms of the actual alcohol infringements themselves, again, they received a, a very strong punishment, 100 days in total to run on top of the the 11 months. And that is an extremely distressing aspect of this whole story. I don't think, as some have said, that you can excuse in any way the Mykonos matter, the COVID breaches because of addiction. I think I don't think I don't think it's that easy, and I don't think it's fair to do that. I think you have to treat the two separately. But I also think that whilst the alcohol infringements were very serious because again they also have um they well, also were putting other people's safety absolutely risk, just it? as with the covid breaches that's why it the impacts there. other yeah it impacts other people and of course these are only the occasions when he was tested 
Well, and to protect himself as Absolutely, well. Absolutely, yeah. They are very serious. But equally, I, I do have a hope, and I, I would hope, that what happened in October 2021, the Newmarket incident that we, we all read about in, in the Newmarket pub, um, will hopefully be the point at which Ashim Murphy was able to reassess his life. He spoke in the hearing of having, during Glorious Goodwood, blacked out every night because of his alcohol use. He told us how his father is a recovering alcoholic and he spoke about how he had used alcohol to deal with success as well as failure. He clearly is someone who was in a a very bad way and I think many of us know people who suffer or have suffered with alcohol addiction Mm -hmm. and I think when you speak to those people they nearly all say that you can only really get help when you acknowledge the problem yourself and actively want to get better because you recognise that you're ill. Like the hope is that, from what Ashim Murphy said at the hearing and what he said elsewhere, is that what happened in October 2021 was the point at which for him he recognised he had a problem. And for all that he has done wrong and for all that I think he does merit the the punishment that he's got. I think Asheen Murphy has been in many other ways a great ambassador for horse racing. He has sought to connect with fans in a way that other people haven't necessarily tried to do or been able to do. I don't think he's a, a bad man at all. I think he's made mistakes as we all make mistakes. And I think for those mistakes, he's been punished. And I think he's been punished fairly. But I hope when we get to February 2023, He is um, a healthy young man, a young man who still wants to return to racing and someone who can and I think will do great things in the sport. Yeah, I've I've no doubt that he'll be back and I've no doubt that he'll be riding loads of winners because he's got a lot of backing uh, from key supporters, including Qatar Racing. This is what the BHA had to say. Uh, Mr Murphy's breach of the rules was serious, reckless, potentially incredibly damaging. They risk endangering his fellow jockeys and racing industry participants. Proud of the way the industry adapted to the challenge caused by the COVID pandemic. Mr Murphy's actions put this at risk. They also had occurred at a time when so many people were making great sacrifices to follow the rules and protocols set out by British governments and the racing industry. Uh, Mr Murphy also acted with, with premeditation and everything that Lee said. We would, however, also acknowledge that Mr Murphy later made full public admissions regarding these offences, did not seek to contest the rule breaches at today's hearing. He also gave full and frank admissions regarding his personal battles. There you are. That's the statement from the BHA. And um, I think we've got one from Qatar Racing as well. There we go. We respect the findings of the BHA panel. Period will provide a sheen with further time to continue his rehabilitation, which we fully support. We look forward to him returning to the race course. In the meantime, Asheen will remain on the Qatar racing team and Kieran Fallon will take over and ride his first jockey until Asheen returns. It's, um, it's quite a big opportunity for Kieran Fallon, Lee, yeah. but they've got to have a, a couple of good horses to, you know, for that opportunity to be, to be meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we, we know from sport and what happens in sport that often someone's great golden opportunity comes from somebody else's misfortune, misfortune. Mm. that would if not the first time that has happened um, and Kieran Fallon like Asheen Murphy is someone who has shown a great willingness to uh, promote the sport yeah. he's a great communicator he's extremely likable as well and he's a very good jockey 
So I think just as um, it was commendable uh, that Kata Racing gave a young man, Asheen Murphy, a big opportunity, as they did, I think it's great that they're doing the same with Kieran Fallon. And I suspect from what I've seen of him and what I know of him that he won't let them down. Um, Kieran Fallon will be riding all those Zoo Star two-year-olds for, for Qatar Racing, <laughs> so I suspect he could, could be getting a few of his, his wins from there, uh, not to mention mise-en-scene for James Ferguson and other good horses this season. Um, the winners of the Leicesters this year were announced earlier this week in a, a ceremony on Sky Sports Racing, and here are the award winners. Well, not much of a surprise of the top one there, Holly Doyle. <laughs> Female Jockey of the Year, Marco Gianni Apprentice, again, not, not a huge surprise. Ray Dawson won Flat Rider of the Year, and it was, a, it was a breakthrough season for him. Joe Fanning with about 7 million winners, Flat Jockey Special <laughs> Recognition. Danny McMenamin was the conditional. Sean Quinlan jumped Rider of the Year for a, a remarkable effort at, at Hexamon for Jim. Richard Johnson won the Special Recognition Award, quite right, too. A Jump Jockey of the Year was Harry Skell, and the Flat Jockey of the Year went uh, unusually not to the man who was crown champion jockey, but, no. to, uh, but to William Buick, who um, has had to self-isolate himself because he's uh, not passed a COVID test, which meant he had to miss Saudi Cup night yesterday and remains in Dubai. Um, well, how are you feeling? Yeah, I feel good, thanks. Um, apart from being a bit frustrated, I, um, fortunately I didn't have any symptoms, so just a positive test. So, are you st do you still have to sit it out now in Dubai? What are the what are the regulations there? Yeah, obviously we're now going into a period where, where as far as I can gather, things are changing um, COVID-wise with testing and protocols. So, I'll just wait and see. Um, I've have have my next test now uh, early early this week coming up. So, hopefully, fingers crossed, um, that can be negative. And it, just on, on what you watched last night, I'm sure. I mean, what did you make of what did you make of the Saudi Cup overall? Yeah, great. Uh, I really enjoyed your coverage. Uh, it was uh, I was uh, sat in in my bedroom here watching it, and it kept me entertained. Uh, it looked like a, like a great spectacle. Obviously, a fantastic race day. And uh, no, I mean, I was obviously gutted. I couldn't be part of it. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I, I enjoyed watching it, and it's a, it's a fascinating meeting where you know you get horses literally from across the globe, very much like Dubai World Cup night, um, and obviously there's huge money on offer. But you know, take that aside, um, I thought we saw some very good horses and some some you know some great. Um, trainer performances and some great rides from the jockeys uh, from the, on, on the night as well. I wanted to ask you about Japan and Christophe Lemaire and your, yeah. your observations there. I mean, to what extent do you think that's an indication of what is still to come? We saw it at the Breeders' Cup. We saw it last night. Is it simply going to be the case now that this is going to be the most potent force in global racing? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has said this, but, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to, to witness it from Japan, you know, I haven't spent um, sort of five or five or six short-term contracts there, and and the horses over there, as a general, you know, in the JRA, they are very strong, very good horses. Um, they always invest in their breeding. Um, you know, they always come to the the mare sales across the world, um, whether it be Newmarket or Keeneland, and they buy the best on offer and, and breed the best to their best. So. 
um, it's no accident. Um, and, um, you know, I think they've been coming, they've been really coming on the global stage now for a while. And, uh, obviously look, last night was just another reminder of it. And, uh, obviously from Christoph's point of view, you know, fantastic, uh, great to watch. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a bit of a, a tour de force from them yesterday. Uh, Le Maire was was uh, amazing last night. Four four wins, also for four different, very different trainers as well, and sort of different size outfits and uh, di- outfits of very different scale. I thought some of his rides from the front were were poetry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, he had good horses, sure. um, but, but but you know, but it's not it's not like they'd have been it's not like they'd have been fives on shots. Do you know if they'd been betting? No, and you could see you know you could you could see. Very easily, Christoph went out, went out there with a plan. Um, he was very, very committed to his plan and, and executed it to, to perfection. It was a, not like you said, it was a, it was a pleasure to watch. Um, and, and it was just another reminder of how strong the, the Japanese are. You've been awarded a Leicester this week by your peers. How much does it mean to you that it is from your peers? Yeah, it was obviously, um, you know, uh, I was, I was, I was, uh, quite surprised to receive it. Obviously, um, you know, I wasn't champion jockey, so um, as far as I can gather, that's quite unusual to to then get the jockey of the year. But um, as I mentioned, you know, to to for it to be voted by by the fellow jockeys in the weighing room, um, and to know that you know they they hold you in, in such regard, it, it's very humbling, obviously, and uh, and it, it's uh, it, it certainly makes it extra, extra special. Um, because it's it's fantastic to get the recognition from press or uh, the outside outsiders, but to, to really get the recognition from from the core of the of the sport is is uh, is really really meaningful. I know you you were very clear that you you didn't want to speak about Ashin's ban this week and the the issues that he's gone through with the BHA, and you're respecting your fellow professional. Your, your, your agent, Tony Hind, is not a shrinking violet. He is not a man to, to keep his counsel on, on these things. And, yeah, he's, he's sort of expressed grievances this week that really, you know, but for all these circumstances, you'd have been champion jockey at, you know, at least once, if not twice. Do you, do you feel any sense of, of grievance about the situation? Well, we're already now, uh, we're nearly in March a year on. So my focus has been on this year. We're kind of getting going now. So to be honest with you, Nick, it's, uh, it, it looks like a very complex situation. Um, and uh, I've got to be brutally honest with you. Um, you know, I've got more important things to, to, to think about right now. Yeah. So it's, it's just a question of looking forward rather than looking in the wing there is you quite happy to draw a line effectively and just concentrate on going on yeah absolutely it's it's behind me it's behind you and there is a ridiculously talented group of horses that you've got to look forward to <laughs> i mean you we're talking about yeah the arguably the three best uh two turning three-year-olds in europe Native Trail Caribus and Modern Games. Yes. You've got Hurricane Lane and Adea still there, not to mention Yabir, the Breeders' Cup winner. We might not have seen the best of him yet. Um, which is the one that gets your blood pumping the hardest? Well, they all do. I mean, you know, when you mention anything like that, it gets my blood pumping. It's, uh, 
especially when you're sat in a, in a, in a sole confinement in the room, you know, you, you look forward to those things extra a little bit more, but, um, fantastic horses, obviously very, very good last year, all of them, especially two year olds, um, you know, the three year olds now, um, any year you have a, a, a Dewhurst winner as a, as a three year old, obviously, um, that really is, uh, usually, usually good enough. Um, but on top of that, have two two more who, who are sort of waiting in the wings is is very exciting. Um, look, it's uh, this time of the year. Obviously, um, a lot a lot of things can still happen, but um, you do sense that there's a there's a there's a a lot of excitement within the within the camp. Okay, I'll, I'll ask you. I'll, I'll ask you one one question about the relative merits of those those two year olds last year. Uh, the European free handicap had had native trail. I think seven clear of the other two, Caribus and Modern Games. Would he give him seven pounds? Well, I wouldn't. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't want to, to to put that much between them. Um, uh, I think I think they're three very different horses. Um, obviously. You know, two two are by Dubawi and, and one is by Oasis Dream. So two of them are similarly bred, but obviously native trail is different. Um, look, there two of them are group one winners. But Coribus, he was always going to be a better three three year old, and and he finished off the season winning the Autumn Stakes. So um, I'm 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 glad I'm not 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 not, yeah. not a handicapper. You know, you know, you know. I'm leading the witness, don't you? Just as a Caribus fanboy, you know, I'm just leading the witness horribly. Yeah, you, you it, it, look. It's it's hard not to be um, not to be impressed what uh, Caribus did last year visually um, as well. So, look, he, he won at Newmarket over a mile. So, we'll see. Uh, it's been a couple of years since Henrietta Nice has joined us in the Luck on Sunday studio. I've been itching to get her back in, and I needed no better excuse than the headline on the front of the Racing Post earlier this week. Knight, Ireland's trainers, better than the British. Now, we're going to, I'm sure, get a more nuanced appraisal of that now, but, uh, Hen, it was an, an eye-catching headline. Welcome back. Um, nice to be back. Thank you, Nick. Um, I think it's a little bit out of context. I had a feeling you might say that. Yes. So what was the... What was the context of what you were trying to get at? Um, it's more the Irish system uh-huh. than against the English system and the way in which they produce their horses that I was very conscious of. And I think that the horses in Ireland have a much better chance of turning out into, the, into top-class horses because of the way they're brought up. That's interesting. So, so what is it from... From the time they're, say, two or three and being broken in and brought through, what do you think sort of being done better or differently or more efficiently there? We all, we all know that Ireland is the home of the horse and yeah. the most wonderful horses are bred in Ireland and it's in the blood of the Irish. They've always had horses, the families have horses. And from the word go, from the moment those horses are born, they're bred to be good racehorses. And the, what I've, I feel is that they break them in nowadays, they do break them in probably earlier. In the old days of, of, the, of, the, of the Draper's era, I remember Brown Ladd wasn't broken in reading about it until he was six. 
but now they are broken in much earlier. Um, they are taught to jump much earlier, like in France, mm -hmm. and they are their muscles and their general well-being is prepared at an earlier stage. Um, once they have been prepared and got ready, and there are so many good yards in Ireland producing these young horses, not the training yards, the other pre-training yards. Once they have been uh, prepared, they then go through this system, either the point-to-point -point system, which is top class, because it brings them on early on. Some of the big point-to-point -point yards are as big as the mm. training yards. Um, but they also, when they've got horses in training, whether it's the big yards or the small yards, they can take them to race courses and practice them, which we can't do here. We don't have training bumpers, we don't have training hurdles, and we don't have places or where these horses can go in an environment where they are against other horses of the same age and stage and, and learn something. The, the horses in England are more isolated in their training yards. It doesn't seem that the race courses will allow big training days, like in, in Ireland, you get you get Tipperary, you get Fairy House, you get Thurless, you get these these race courses will have days when you would probably have 600 horses would go to those courses. I mean, at Tipperary, there'd be 600 horses in two days. And, and they would learn so much. So isn't the truth that, that in Ireland there are all these mechanisms in place where these top trainers are really just identifying their talent more readily? So the filtration system works better and you can see where the good horses are. Isn't that part of it Yes, as well? and the cream rises to the top at yeah. an early age. And then when they've got the, the cream, then they work on the cream. And they bring it over to England, to the festivals or to the D Dublin festivals. And you can see the top horses because they've come out. And also the, the races, they're not afraid to run them in the races either, the trainers. And big fields, and they're competitive. And like Lee was saying, our racing is not as competitive as it should be. The Irish are quite happy to to run in 18-runner, 20-runner beginners' chases over there. Over here you see the novice chases, three or four runners. It's pathetic. But if the horses don't run against horses on the same level, I know they say, bring in the handicap question, they don't run against horses on the same level. How are they going to learn and get competitive? I mean, it's just sort of walkovers. So you actually think that that actively retards a horse's a horse's progress to to have it run in uncompetitive races. I it do. Actually, so it, it, I do. You're, you're going to bring you're going to bring a horse on better by run, by putting that horse in deep. Yes, definitely. I mean, if you see some of the novice chases we've had lately here, I mean, I saw one the other day, and I shan't mention which it was, but it was. It was just very hard work for one horse to have to do the whole thing more or less on its own. It didn't have any competition. It didn't have anything to inspire it and to teach it. And so you think, therefore, it's got a, a lesser chance of reaching its full, its full potential? Well, then it gets put into, into the deep end when it goes to somewhere like Cheltenham. And it hasn't had the experience of running in big runner fields. And it, it, it probably might be... All at sea. So, I don't, do you think things have differed materially since 
since you were training Best Mate and Edredon Bleu, etc. Have things differed significantly since then? I think possibly the structure of the races in England has differed and that we didn't have s such small numbers of horses in the races as they do mm -hmm. today. Um, so is that more to do with the fact that the programme hasn't adapted to the population of the horses rather than yeah. the programme being yeah, that Yeah, we've got too many, too many races, mm. too much racing in England and too many races of a similar calibre. Which or, or that we've actually just got too few horses. Too few horses because they've been diluted. Races. Yeah. And, the, you know, they aren't, they aren't, the, com the competitive racing is, the, is where we've gone wrong, I'm sure. And so when you were training those very good horses, were you not thinking, well, actually, I'd quite like a five-runner novice chase round Exeter to start oh, off? Oh, we'd love it, yes. But it's probably not necessarily the best thing for the horses. Um, five-runner is possibly all right, but for the future, the thing also that worries me is the way in which bumpers are run in England, mm -hmm. because they run much, they run, I think a lot of the racing in England is run much faster. In the races in Ireland, the horses go much slower, they have time to adjust and adapt to the race course and the race meeting. In England, it, it seems to be running horses in bumpers to please the owners to have a winner and a bumper. And it may not be for the benefit of the horse. I would love somebody statistically to find out how many of the horses that have won bumpers in England are still even in training as seven and eight-year-olds, let alone good horses. Maybe a few of them are good, very good ones, but so many of them are ruined early on by doing too much with them in a bumper, putting the gun to their head and asking them to do too much when they're not ready for it. So this, so this is interesting, so that we need to make a clear distinction here, because you were saying one of the advantages in Ireland is that they're bringing horses forward earlier and teaching them and training them and getting them to the track and doing things with them. Yet, on the other hand, you're saying we're doing too much too soon with horses in England. So what's the what's the We're doing it wrongly. Okay, so we're doing it wrongly. Yes, we're doing it... The bumpers in Ireland are run differently. There are bumpers, most meetings, there are bumpers. And... and you know, it's very much more of a learning curve for uh -huh. horses. In England, owners want to, want to win bumpers. They want to say a horse is first or second in a bumper. It's not the be-all or end-all in Ireland. It's, an, it's part of a step upwards. Of course, some of the top horses, like your horses that are coming to Cheltenham for the festival bumper, I mean, they've just, some of the Mullins horses have just walked through the bumpers because they're so good. But, you know, there are a lot of horses in the bumpers which you haven't heard much of, but in a few years' time they'll be very good horses because they've learnt steadily. People are, haven't got the patience over here. In Ireland they've got the patience, possibly because they've got more horses and possibly because they're more conditioned to it. And the people, the owners in Ireland and the trainers play for time. They're not in such a hurry. Even in, even in Ireland, though, Hen, there will be people saying, can... It's not quite a duopoly because you've got Henry de Bromhead in there as well and if Joseph O'Brien feels so inclined he can sort of get his jump string up to a pretty serious level. But we've got really big, two big superpowers in Willie Mullins and Gordon Elliott and there'll be plenty of the smaller trainers there saying, well, this ain't great for us, us either. Mm. What do you think of, of that? Well, you're not going to stop big trainers if you're very successful 
owners are going to want to put their horses with the, with the most successful trainers. But they've done it. I mean, Willie's and Gordon's yards, which I visit quite frequently. Yeah. They're two amazing yards. They're quite different. But um, the work and the thought and the, the deta- attention to detail in those yards is incredible. And those horses that are there, every horse is treated as an individual horse. It's brought forward. It's, um, you might go out into Willie's yard and think, well, what on earth are all these horses? Or into Gordon's. How does he know what they all are? They know them, every one of them. They know exactly where they are. And although they're huge yards, it's not a factory. It's not, it's not just a, a numbers game. It's the individual and you know, obviously Paul Nichols was in here earlier and I, I'm, it's that annoying because I, I really wanted to have you on together because mm. I wanted to sort of open this debate up a bit but obviously he's bristling a bit because he's 12 times champion trainer he's achieved everything there is to achieve he's won a stack of gold cups he's, you know, he prides himself on uh, the team that he has around him and his attention to detail and he's thinking well you know why is Hen saying that these Irish guys can, can do it better than I can I'm not saying that the de- attention detail isn't good in a lot of the English yards as well actually within the yards I mean my neighbour Nicky Henderson does a fantastic job with his horses and I've been to Paul's on several occasions and you know he's very particular what goes on Um, the two big yards Um, but I think it's somehow that they their horses haven't don't continue with the system I mean I'd love to have had Paul in here with me I'd love to ask him what he's done with some of the, the horses that he bought, the young horses from the sales and things in Ireland. Where have they gone to? And of course, he'd have had an answer for me. He said they're about probably going to win at Cheltenham. But um, somehow they haven't be, had the same... They haven't gone through the same avenues as the Irish horses that have been bought at the sales. Nicky's are a bit different. Some of He, he loves a young horse, and he loves buying store horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a little bit more like the Irish because he sort of um, lodges them out with other yards. And, of course, now Paul said he was doing that a little bit too. But it'll be interesting to see how it goes. So you think there is something in this, having having systems and networks of pre-training yards, um, that, that is a, a big part of this? It's a big part in Ireland, um, because obviously you can't cope with all the numbers. They aren't all ready to be trained for certain races at a certain time. And so I think some of the pre-training yards do a, a good job in England as well. But maybe more use should be made of them. And it's difficult to get the riders. That's the, my, one of my, my mm. things. I mean, Ireland, so many of the staff, I know they struggle for staff in Ireland as well as they struggle in England, but so many of the people in the yards have come from horse backgrounds and they've been born and bred to horses. And they are very good riders. And as, Whereas in England, a lot of the... Um, they come from sort of smaller backgrounds in horses, if I, if I get it right. They come, some of them come through the Pony Club, but some have had no experience with horses whatsoever. And I know the British Racing School does a very good job, but they don't, they aren't sort of, it isn't in the blood. Whereas in Ireland, it's in the blood, and those people understand horses from the start. I, I can't really explain it until and just the fact that I've been in the yards and I've seen the staff. And when you're in the yard, you get this feeling of confidence that they all know what they're doing. And it's a, it's a lovely feeling. Because-